Hey there, AYT listeners. Just want to jump in quick before the show starts proper. Give a shout out to our sponsor on this episode, and it comes from our friends at the Criterion Collection. Uh, specifically, I like to usually shout out a release or two on Blu-ray from Criterion. This this week is no different, as they have put out the Jim Jarmusch classic, I would say, from 1995, uh, Dead Man, the film starring Johnny Depp, sort of an bizarre uh, acid western, I guess if you wanted to call it that, but uh, it's certainly a unique film and one of my favorites from a certainly uh, unique filmmaker in Jarmusch. Find that disc uh, anywhere you buy Blu-rays or DVDs these days, and don't forget that Criterion has a curated selection of their uh, collection of films also available on Filmstruck if streaming is your jam. So we thank the Criterion Collection for doing awesome work and especially for supporting this podcast. Now on with the show. And- Five, four, three, two. Live on tape from Hollywood, the Larry Sanders Show. Tonight, join Larry and his guest and me, hey now, Hank Kingsley. And now, because we've tried it with just the desk, and it really isn't the same, Larry Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Hey, buddy. Uh, we we often on this show, I feel like it's not even an exaggeration to say, we tend to to sort of look at movies, the more common movies, the the movies in the fictional realm, the made-up stories. We all really mm-hmm. tend to like that. Yeah. They get them they get the most attention, but uh, we're going to we're going to we're going to go into that non-fiction realm for this episode, right? Yeah, we're going to keep it real today. Oh, nice. Um with a, a series of documentaries. Um, the first of which is uh, by William Friedkin, who like his first film was a documentary. It got him like noticed. It was the people versus Paul Crump. Was that mm. the right title? I'm going to trust you on that. I'll look it up. Keep talking. It, it, uh, and it was like, you know, heralded as like, you know, it ended up like exonerating this man, got him off death row in the same way that, uh, the thin blue line did later for Errol Morris. Um, and it really put William Friedkin on the map. And, you know, this was a time where I think documentary wasn't, you know, nearly as omnipresent and, you know, like it, he used it as a segue into feature filmmaking. And he took that sort of like gritty realistic approach and sort of like that was, his touch that he brought to like his early seventies movies, like the French connection. And then later with the exorcist, that's like less realistic, but had like a immediacy that Mm -hmm. felt real and horrifying and overwhelming. And so his new documentary um, is about a real life, actual exorcist. It's called um, the devil and father Amorth. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's Amort. The H is silent. I, I thought that's how he pronounced it, but yes. Okay. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty brisk um, documentary. It's an hour and eight minutes. Um, pretty slight, you know, in the scheme of things, mm-hmm. especially with the other documentary uh, series we're going to be discussing later in the episode. Right. A six plus exhaustive and thoroughly rewarding. Um, <laughs> anyway, so let's just let's stay on task with this one. Um, <laughs> It's going to be hard to, though. <laughs> it was uh, interesting. And this is going to come out, I think, theatrically and VOD. Well, it's, um, it's out in, not- in New York and L.A., I think, just this past weekend. It played in like three screens. It Possibly L.A., but definitely New York. Okay. So um, 
while watching it, I don't know that it like, especially in the the sort of like glut of other documentary titles that seem to be going just straight to streaming now. Mm. This one doesn't necessarily demand the theatrical treatment. And like you and I have always said that, you know, regardless of what the film is, like everything benefits from being seen in the dark on a big screen with like decent immersive sound and uh, watching this, I was just like, yeah, I don't know. This seems right at home on my laptop. So um, <laughs> I'm not, cause there's just something slight removed and slightly out of touch with like the approach that he has. It feels more at home with like a lifetime special of paranormal events than mm-hmm. it does an actual cinematic documentary feature. This is, true. you know, it's true. Like the the narration by him is featuring him like in a lot of sort of talking head moments for him. Like, you know, he's burdened with like a lot of the narration Mm. and it's like, here is the house. And it just recalled Robert Stack and Unsolved Mysteries, a show that I love, but I love it as I'm watching it as a television show and not trying to lose myself in as a sort of documentary feature. And yeah, it was like, I don't know. Like I would have watched a, paranormal type lifetime series special by William Friedkin, or at least I would have put it in my queue to then never watch it, which is almost (laughs) the same thing nowadays, (laughs) but like you approach it as like a feature film, you know, feature documentary is just like, it starts to crumble underneath the weight of what that means. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in a weird time right now. I I do know. I know. We're in a weird time where it's like, uh, um, I I know I've talked about this before. I think we have collectively of like, to me, this all gets down to like, know the medium that you like, it's all about choosing the right medium for whatever story you have to tell. And because TV and streaming especially has made that so expansive that the lines are blurred as to what makes a film and what's a TV show and who really cares, you know, the people versus OJ Simpson or no, um, what was the OJ Simpson documentary made in America, right? Yeah. That, yeah, that yeah. example that created a controversy where now Oscar won't let TV, like they, they disqualified something like that, which won the Oscar that year, like after the fact. Um, so there's all this um, controversy about like, you know, what makes a film now because of these different avenues to show them. So I think the onus is on a filmmaker more and more. And, um, maybe the the fault in this regard for the devil and Father Amort is in the distributor because there's a sensationalism to this story and footage that you could see that no one has really been able to see before. That's kind of like a great hook. And I think that's the one reason that The Orchard, which is a really cool indie distributor, probably thought, well, let's try to put this out in some theaters. It's William Friedkin. We can angle it with The Exorcist. And they saw an opportunity to maybe make a little extra money from that. I guess I don't fault them for that. But this is a fucking TV episode at best, you know, and and um, really what it is, I'd say beyond that is this is a special feature on and this should be included on the next exorcist blu-ray release you know as uh to me it only even comes close to approaching like working uh as about as nice as i can be to it is it would only work as a complimentary a supplemental thing to to the exorcist because part of what's kind of wrong with it is that it's supposed to sort of be a tribute to this guy, father Amort, who was he's, he's since passed, but 
it's like supposed to be a tribute to this guy who is one of the Vatican's like leading exorcists that actually does these on a regular basis or did. And um, William Friedkin can't help but make it about him and his legacy mm-hmm. with the exorcist. And Hey, I love William Friedkin as a raconteur. I think you've seen him somewhat recently in the last few years speaking, uh, uh, maybe with Nicholas Wendon Refn, I, I want to know, you, you could tell me that, but like, uh, he's a great raconteur. I like him as a personality. He's a hilarious blowhard, but he's f- engaging to listen to. But, uh, this movie, you know, kind of isn't the best use of that, I guess. Yeah. In fact, I would rather this be a, an, a 68 minute, just conversation about him making the exorcist as opposed to trying to like thread together like what what is interesting footage and interesting material and like really provocative but somehow in the context of what feels like a sort of hokey tv show becomes like it starts to feel fake even though it's insisting on its reality yeah so it's just like he he is interesting enough his experiences are interesting enough his approach to filmmaking is fascinating so it's just like I did listen to him at the Cine Family, rest in peace, uh, after his, they premiered the 4K restoration of Sorcerer. That's it, yeah. Yeah, he talked at great length uh, (laughs) to the point where I was just like, I'm filled up. I've heard enough. I've heard enough of his stories. Gotta go. (laughs) And an hour after a pretty lengthy movie, or at least like, if it's not over long, it's an exhausting movie. An you get put through the ringer. Yeah. 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 And so to just, he's like, ah, I'm ready for more. Let's talk <laughs> hours. Oh my God. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just interesting to have somebody who had his, like, you know, like he, he knows how to find the pulse of like a provocative story and he knows how to get to just like cut to like the absolute visceral, like, core of something and like to not be able to access that like in, in the documentary form at this point was just like, it was kind of frustrating, especially when there's, you know, like as we were approaching this episode, like there's plenty of other solid documentaries to get lost in. Maybe we should transition to them. Maybe we should real quick. I'll just, I want to finish on this with just saying that, <clears throat> um, there is a Vanity Fair article that William Friedkin first wrote about this experience of him. It's actually like as he was making the film or after, I think he wrote this article for them. Uh, it's from 2016 and it's very easy to find. Just type William Friedkin, the devil and like William Friedkin Vanity Fair. You'll find it. And he wrote it and it is essentially this documentary written out. And I found after the fact, I found the article to be the much better, also a better medium for this story because there are leaps that you have to take, uh, leaps of faith, one might say, to kind of go with Friedkin on this documentary uh, or this story. And reading it is just much, it's easier. Whereas you're seeing things in this movie that part of the one thing I really liked about this documentary is Friedkin, William Friedkin is an open-minded guy. I'm very impressed by that. He's open to sort of different ideas and things that are easily, I would say, dismissible. But having said that, I watched this movie and I couldn't help but several scenes feel like I just kept wanting to call bullshit on it. That like, how am I supposed to just believe that this is what I'm seeing? Um, so Having said that, an article, this article in Vanity Fair, that's how I would approach this story. That if people are curious about what happened, that's what where I would recommend. Um, and then the other thing, it references what you said. 
there's a great two part podcast that just got released by a friend, a friend podcast of ours called The Talk House. And it's Guillermo del Toro and William Friedkin talking for like an hour plus. And it's such a great chat. And it really brings out the best of Friedkin's sort of sort of blowhardiness is tempered mm-hmm. by, by del Toro's equal enthusiasm and cinephilia. Like these two really like each other. You can tell very early. And um, that, I mean, that's where you want to get your William Friedkin fix, I would say. So that podcast is, is special as well. And the last thing I want to just reference before we do turn to our more substantial um, chat on other movies is there is a really good uh, recently released um, made as a supplemental special special feature for a Blu-ray release uh, making of documentary uh, on the new Star Wars, The Last Jedi Blu-ray. It's called The Director and the Jedi, and it is a proper 90 plus minute making of behind the scenes on the making of that film. And I'll tell you, uh, I really liked The Last Jedi, but I would say people that even if there are plenty of people that did not like that movie, that documentary might be worth watching. And I just thought as a supplemental thing, it knew what it wanted to be. It knew what it, where it belonged. It's premiered at some festivals, this documentary, but essentially it's just going to live as an additional element to a big Disney movie, right? But that's where it belongs and it shines as that. It's It has no... Uh, illusions as to what it is and it tells its story really uh, well and that's a great example of something like that that at least knew what it was Um, so I kind of wish we had a little more of that foresight with the devil and father Amort but you know can't can't argue with these distributors trying to maybe make an extra buck everybody felt they were there at the beginning of the great experiment like we were the chosen people. <laughs> I'm here in one of the largest ranches in the Northwest. Today, it's Rajneesh Purim because a prominent Indian guru and his followers bought it. Our vision was to create a community based on compassion and sharing. Bhagwan's agenda was simply to raise the consciousness of humanity. That was his goal. America was land of promise. It was my conviction we will have no problems. I don't think America has a place for these people. Everyone in Antelope mistrust Rajneesh. I want that guru and his evil influence out of my city. Both documentary series we're going to be talking about today have been out for kind of a while. Um, but I think the the conversation, you know, was, was most rabid about... Uh, Wild Wild Country, um, which came out on Netflix a few weeks ago, and um, I was able to catch up with you. Watched it immediately, mm-hmm. um, but I was able to catch up with last week, and just the 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 sense of like immersion in like this series, which like not unlike uh, O.J. Simpson made in America, had this like quality of like just having this huge sprawling saga of a story that you could just get lost in. And like once, you know, something has the freedom of being like that many hours and can go down that many avenues of the story. Like there's just like, it's unparalleled. And it's like, I know that OJ Simpson made in America did play theatrically a few times, I think enough to qualify it for the Oscar nomination, but just like imagine sitting through like uninterrupted, like just an unbroken experience of watching seven hours 
of this. And it's that riveting. Like it would, it would keep you that enthralled. I think it would chew you up and spit you out the other end, like pretty, <laughs> pretty, you know, used up. But like uh, Wild Wild Country is that, like, that thorough, that immense, immersive, and exhausting. And it's just, it follows uh, a cult called the Raj cult. That's mean to say it first because they were. It was like a. It was a religion. It was a mindset. A lot of you know, like similar movements were kind of coming out of the the like the post hippies like era of people trying to find like alternative ways of living and like this one was based in India and became known as the Rajneeshis who relocated to uh, a sort of remote area of Oregon to build their their commune and their utopia and it quickly took on a sort of like life of its own that after its sort of utopian goals tipped into a dystopia, a sort of, <laughs> a, a sort of like poisoning happens literal and figurative. And, um, the, it was just like, you know, like I'd, I'd heard like people just getting really like lost in, like in the series that came out on Netflix a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, cautious about it like i was interested but i was like i don't know i don't have time for this but like once you make time like all the time clips passed really incredibly quickly Mm because like it's so easy to get lost in it to the point where like four episodes in out of the six episodes i texted you and i was like i think i'm gonna really miss these people once (laughs) the experience is over and like these are incredibly flawed like at times insane seeming people that are all speaking frankly and for themselves in interview segments that, you know, recall a lot of Errol Morris's best work, but like, this is a pretty fascinating documentary in terms of like what it pulls from and where it takes you to. I agree, man. You know, my, the, the memory that is uh, most strong right now for me with watching this, because we watched it that first weekend, it dropped on Netflix, me and my girlfriend. And it was like, even though I work on the weekends, we got through it. I think after that, it was one of those truly binge experiences that I like you try to, if, if nothing else, I always try to be sort of hesitant or suspicious of that because I just don't want to get sucked down and lose, like lose days like that anymore. You know, it, it just, yeah. I, I see the fun in it and it really was fun with wild country, but because I'm more cautious and I try to just be like, all right, I'll parse this stuff out. You know, there's, there's always time to watch this, but when you do get hooked on something like this, it makes the case for how exciting Netflix, which has this Netflix, uh, you can find it there. Streaming is what makes these new streaming avenues, like very exciting for the potential because it's the perfect it goes back to what I started with, with the Friedkin documentary. This was chosen for its perfect thing. It's a mini series. It needs that length. It needs chapters, different episodes. Um, And it's so perfectly constructed and uh, was made in the right medium. So I love that right off the bat. But um, yeah, so I get sucked into it, loved the binge effect of it. I did. I do miss these people you're talking about that you, it's one of these great series where the length allows you to feel like you get to know these people almost intimately that you're, that are being interviewed. And, um, I love that experience. Of course, we all want to like, you know, like the characters we're watching in a movie, but, uh, yeah, I'm just very excited. Like, this is like a great experience, great documentary, um, uh, effort, 
But like, I'm also just get excited for like, God, that means more of these can come here and we can get more stuff like this because this is a, this is a documentary that is rewarding on many levels, but kind of awesome because of all the archival footage that was used. Yeah. Like that changes this movie. And um, again, similar, I think it is kind of for me and maybe for you as well this year, it feels like this year's OJ made. And it does feel like that OJ documentary where there was just all this footage of these people in wild, wild country because the Rahanishis like filmed everything or shot everything on videotape. They, they were very media savvy and there's all this footage. So the movie is not just talking heads. It's, able to go back and forth in time literally with yeah. this footage and that makes it super special and fascinating and the footage they have is incredible and then it just makes it this impressive herculean task that uh, i think the directors they're the the way brothers um they made a great little documentary also on netflix called the battered bastards of baseball which is about a uh, Portland minor league baseball team from the 70s Portland Oregon and Kurt Russell's dad owned them and Super fascinating movie. I think we talked about it years ago. Um, but yeah. these guys these guys are really impressive directors. And I love this sort of Oregon Pacific Northwest focus they have so far in these few efforts they've made. But they really like get this area. They really are, I think, really good interviewers because the, the stuff they get out of people on all sides is very revealing and fascinating. And um, yeah, what can I say? This is one of my favorite... Uh, whatever you want to call it, television, movie, whatever. This is one of my favorite like visual medium experiences I've had this year. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this movie and I want, I want more of it, but I don't want to be greedy. I'm just happy that this one exists and it's so well done. Yeah. It's, it's got such a like incredible, like uh, just resource of footage that you mentioned to the point where somebody I was talking to a, fr- a friend of mine, thought it was fake because it was just like they had like it was too convenient that they had so much footage that I <laughs> it was fake and I was like no but there's like real newscasters like from the period that are actual people that are talking about the events that are unfolding in the footage that you're watching so it's like how could you have fake that unless it's like hyper developed Forrest Gump technology where it's like, Oh, there's, there's Dan rather from 1982 talking about the Rajneeshis. And it's like, it was, it was pretty, I mean, we're, we will get there in terms of like uh, doctored footage uh, forever altering a reality that eludes us at right. all turns and, and just be like, forget it. I don't want to know anything anymore, but like, yeah, like, the sheer like wealth of footage is like it allows like for a sense of immersion and a sense of like uh, an almost thriller like quality to happen like yes. as as things kind of take dark turns and as they invade this like small town and the small town starts to like go to war with these like at one point idealistic you know you could argue occasionally fanatical seeming people but ultimately like it's like it, it's the perfect it's the perfect utopian kind of like story because it's these people who are truly trying to find like they're they're a microcosm of idealism that sours into like all the things that corrupt you know and so it's like they're they're trying to find the idealized alternative to what's wrong with the world right so it's these people who who are about self-improvement and about like accessing your truest self. And so they have this guru um, 
Bob named Bob. the Bon. Yeah, who like <clears throat> he eventually becomes this kind of silent, smiling figure. Which like after watching you know six plus hours of it, it's hard not to walk into a room with my hands clasped in front of my face, like because <laughs> it's like that just seems like a cool greeting now, just to it like. Is. <laughs> Just to beam like transcendently while your hands are in front of your face. seems like the cool thing to do. (laughs) I don't do it, but it it seems nice. So it's like (laughs) people who are all about like self-actualization, self-improvement, they band together and they build this commune and it's this like functioning society in the middle of this remote Oregon landscape. And then like any like society itself, the society that they're trying to create an alternative for things start to sour, things start to corrupt, things start to get like dark and and, like, and, you know, kind of like menacing. And so it's just like the movie takes on this almost thriller atmosphere. And like in a way that as you're watching the news footage of the time, it was just like when you're living your life in the 1980s and I wasn't cognizant of this group at the time, I'm sure my parents were because they're from Oregon originally, but like, enough time would go on in between you would move on with your life. And you, you hear about those weird people who all wear red and live in Oregon and seem to be dancing around a lot. But like it didn't, it didn't have the compact like real life. You could sort of like forget about them for a while. And then they'd come back with some, a, a weird salacious headline where you're like, Oh Jesus, those people are up they're into crazy shit again. But like the way it's compacted in story form in this documentary takes on like a sense of propulsion and momentum. That's really fucking engaging to like, to sit with and watch, you know, like it takes on like a thriller quality. It really does. And I think the immersion that you're talking about with that footage to actually travel back and see what they were seeing then. And, you know, at least from the camera person's perspective is like, it's it's like a gift to have for a documentary and i feel like this is only something that we're going to get more of as well in the future because all of us are fucking documenting stuff right so it's it's just cool to go back to a story like this and then to be able to tell it with decades of hindsight retrospect research yeah. uh evolution uh, and growing you know uh, maturation in the people involved um and then to have like all this footage for posterity that they were so that's something I do want to talk about in this documentary. That's so awesome is the pendulum swing of, uh, my sympathy and empathy. Well, I, it's a very empathetic documentary. It's very open and wants to understand everybody's perspective. I love it for that, but my sympathies kept swinging back and forth because for me, I didn't, I never, I was probably too young and also living in Minnesota. Like this, at the time, like I didn't know this uh, was going on. I, this was new to me when this documentary came out. I didn't know anything about the Rahanishis and come to find out, you know, yeah, in Eastern Oregon, they just completely revitalized this land when they moved there. Um, it's a very complex story, but essentially Bhagwan and his followers were getting so uh, large in India he needed to move somewhere and he was acquiring a lot of wealth and blah, blah, blah. So they bought this huge chunk of land that just was like Eastern Oregon is, you know, is is almost desert. uh, Most of it. So a lot of the land is kind of arid and dead. Um, And they were right next to this sleepy town called Antelope, Oregon, where maybe like 20 people were just retiring and just living out the end, the last of their days. And in comes this influx of 
10,000 plus people, right? And they're strange to these locals. And it just brings up all these, there's just so many pendulum swings of sympathies. The first couple episodes, I'm like, hey, these Rahanishis aren't so bad. They're a little weird, I guess. But like, hey, they, they actually made that land fertile and like, animals came back and I'm all in their corner. And then like episode three ends, I think on a shot of, they started to acquire machine guns at the, mm. at the, and I'm like, I remember saying one of those early episodes, I'm like, I am so in the side of the Rahanishis at this point, And the locals just seem like bigoted, short-sighted assholes that don't like other people coming into their town. And of course, what this movie proves is it's always more complicated than that. And it's not that simple. But I remember saying, like, when is the shoe going to drop here? Like, what was the thing that led to this? Because I know that this is a dark story in terms of where it spins out. And that shot, it's that it's an like the great example of like, I can't believe yeah, I wouldn't this. like it's It's actually like a such a great moment that like yes. maybe don't spoil it for whoever hasn't seen it. Good point. I thank you. Good point. There's just an this incredible another example of like I'm so glad they had this footage because they're allowed to let an image a, tell yeah. to like um create an ellipses to keep you binging, right? At the end of that episode, you're like, fuck, what? And it they didn't need a talking head to say, you get it, image, boom, there. I mean, it's film, that's cinema, even though this is streaming on Netflix and uh, I just loved that sort of stuff. So yeah, the pendulum swings of my emotions and sympathies and the whirlwind of just people like you, you're yeah. right. I think in the end, this is an example of like, I, I love people, but I also hate people like in mass, right. like me personally, because we fuck everything up. And this is an example of it. Yeah. The, that buttoning moment is so, like, I had gasped when it like, yes. there's an image and it's right before it just cuts to black for like the credits of that episode roll. And like, I'm sure there is a way for you to like edit out the credits and have this be just one seamless experience, albeit an exhausting one, but like it, it's worthwhile and it's worth getting lost in because it is, it does cover like such a spectrum and such like it does give voice to like people and nuance to a, a like discussion and conversation that like largely feels like it's being squeezed out everywhere. And like, it's hard not to look at, you know, the sort of burden of like contemporary life through, through these like reflections, you know, like in a documentary like this, where you're like, how can you not see a contemporary America in this way where it's like people pitted against each other, mm -hmm. like in this, in this weird, like clashing ideologies in such a drastic fashion, you know, but it was just like the way they allowed everybody to speak for themselves and for you to be, and to give you room to be like, Oh, this person's fucked up. This person's still fucked up. Like, and they're, they're controlling their own narrative. They're not in control of the entire narrative of the piece, but they allow them to speak for themselves in a similar way to like people in, O.J. Simpson made in America, like Mark Furman was one yeah. of the lead detectives. That guy is a fucked up person, but he was humanized, not heroized, but he was humanized and allowed to speak to his own flaws and how fucked up he was in that documentary. Mm -hmm. You ultimately don't walk away being like, he's a good dude. No, not at all. But you're just like, well, he's a lot more complicated than like he was being painted. Like he still is an incredibly conflicted corrupt fucked up person but it's like i have a better picture of who he is now because he was allowed to like speak for himself 
And like this movie is full of those people sometimes contradicting themselves, sometimes yeah. like getting to a place where they truly find a redemption that's like that's like really overwhelming in the concluding sections of this this series, you know? Like it's mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, man. And I, I think more of uh just the people I'm gonna miss or I, I have missed since finishing this this mini series of you like always watch it again. This is true. It's endlessly available, right? Um the my favorite probably character, I guess these are characters in a documentary, is I can't think of his name, but he talks a lot. He was the lawyer for the Rahanishis, um, and then yeah. became even more yeah, you know the guy I'm referring to? Uh, yeah. He, and then he became almost a more higher political figure within the Rahanish perm within their community. Uh, I loved that guy. I thought he, even though he was 100% and he doesn't, he doesn't say anything otherwise. He, he is full on a believer. He is a true believer of this movement, whatever you want to call it, religion cult. He is so into it, but I found him incredibly even handed and sort of balanced as a personality, as a person. And, Certainly he's on the side of his people and he, as a lawyer, he did everything he could to defend and back them up and fight for them. But I thought he was really fair and even handed in his recollections. And I just liked him as a speaker, you know, like, um, and he's probably my favorite, but he's got nothing, absolutely nothing on, of course, the sort of star of it all is I would say Sheila, a non Sheila. And Mm -hmm. this woman is both incredible. I was like in awe of her in the beginning and just like in her corner. And then when things really started to curdle and take on a darker edge, a lot of it sort of sources back to her in a lot of ways. And I, even after I got sort of angry with her by the end of the miniseries, I was always understanding of her the same way you're, you're referring to with like the Mark Furman character in the OJ doc is like she does and was responsible for stuff. There are factual evidence of it. She spent time in jail for some of the things she did. She did, she did provable, awful things yet in this documentary, in my memory, she doesn't, she doesn't admit to anything yet tells her story in a way that doesn't feel like she's alighting the truth. She just doesn't admit to anything. And I found her to be such a fascinating person and also the media the way she engaged and fought with the local and national media and then the local Mm -hmm. politicians and people like oh my god she's so fascinating and just endlessly watchable but she is fucked up man like it's it's fascinating she's a fucked up person in my mind but i kind of loved watching her so this movie's full of that yeah it's it's also you know in terms of like reflecting current reality, it's refreshing to see um, political figures speak coherently. Um, yeah. And then <laughs> right. to have the, the Rajneeshis speak um, themselves in a, a very poise, like with the poise and polish of like public officials speaking, and then they'll just swear, which is kind of like, like, you know, <laughs> we feel betrayed by some of our own who fucked us over and like that's <laughs> the lawyer character you're talking about who went on to become, yeah. like, you know, the mayor basically. Um, he, he like, he says that at one point and like yeah. Sheila calls someone a bitch in the middle of like a town meeting. And it's like, oh, yeah. this is, this is a very interesting, like juxtaposition of like, you know, 
posturing yourself and like the the part when Bogwan r- removes his silence and he, yeah. he refers to Sheila as a bitch and that like they he never had sex with her which is what caused all this like animosity between them I mean this is stuff that comes later on but like I just felt like oh like this movie worked so well to like put me in that position that when that came there's like this awkward TV show where Bogwan is talking about Sheila and it's just like, dude, aren't you better than this? But then it's like, maybe yeah. you're not, you know, maybe you're yeah, not. Yeah. And you, you are just a dude with a ton of money and you're really good at inspiring people. And that's, that's positive. That could be good, but also you're a fucking dude. And you know, there's a lot more to his story that the movie sort of gets to. And I almost wanted more of like this, like drug abuse that he was going through. All these things are just so, there's just so much to chew on in this documentary, but like, yeah, the like vulgarity. I mean, Sheila's the best at that. And you the way she um you could tell she loved the spotlight, loved the camera, and she um mm-hmm. has that smile. It's like a shit-eaten grin and it's like telling people I know something you don't even if she yeah. doesn't. And I think that's what pissed so many people off about her, but she's so fascinating as just that figure, man. She's she's so compelling. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I, I I had talked to somebody yesterday that was talking about how like, like I wish they went more in depth on. I was like, how much more in depth could they go? This is like a six hour thing. And I was just like, you just didn't want it to end. Like, yeah, I guess so. I guess that's accurate. <laughs> that's what I came to peace with because I was saying that throughout the movie. I'd be like, hold on. There, there seems like there'd be more to what they're referring to. And, but in the end, the movie gives you plenty too much yeah there's so much and and i'm sure there is lots more i mean i heard there are stories that after this um this compound in oregon was sort of closed and they left that like other awful there's more to this story absolutely but in the end i think it's a compliment to this movie of like we wanted more of it and like i came around to that as well I i think you're right it's just like yeah i just liked it so much i wanted more and what a compliment to give to something that's like 400 minutes long or however many hours, six plus hours, you know? Uh, yeah. so yeah, it's, um, I just want to go back to like, I love that we're, I want more of these kind of things. Uh, the, this is like my favorite kind of documentary, just this all encompassing retrospect, you know, looking back with the information we have now. Um, that's so fascinating. So I'm, I'm glad you liked it too, man. Yeah. It's, it was nice to see uh, Portland in the 1980s too. It, it was because I. It certainly doesn't look like the Portland I live in right now, as you know. So uh, they're showing the documentary, the sort of early '80s documentary of the Rajneeshis, like that comes out, and the townspeople go to a theater oh. to see it. You remember the section I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looked like the Fifth Avenue Cinemas at PSU. I, I, I heard it though. was. No, no, I think it is, or it was in that footage. Um, because one of my coworkers used to work there not that long ago and mentioned that actually. So I think you're right. Yeah. Cool. Good, <laughs> that is cool. It is very yeah. comforting. Very comforting. Um, well, speaking of comforting, uh, if you yes. want to pivot to our, our concluding uh, documentary series. I think, is there anything else, Judd, seriously? I'm writing jokes with uh, my friend Judd. You know, for 25 years, he was the most important mentor that I had. But in a lot of ways, he was a mystery to me. None of these journals are the same, and it reflects from the time I was 25 till now. We go back to her place. I'm on the couch, and I'm really getting into it. And uh, she comes into the room, 
Gary told an audience, don't worry, folks, you're going to feel good by comparison when I leave the stage. My mother wants to marry me. I told my shrink that, and he, he did something I've only seen blackjack dealers do. He looked at me and he went... Judd Apatow's latest directorial effort was a two-part HBO docuseries called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling and went in, in great depth and detail about the life of Gary Shandling, the legacy of his career. And um, it's uh, it's one that like I loved uh, the Larry Sanders show, which Gary Shandling was responsible for to, to a depth and degree that I don't really, I don't know that I understand. Like I love that show <laughs> so thoroughly to the bone that I'm just like, I don't, I don't know that I don't know what it is about the show, but we can maybe get into it. But um, mm-hmm. what like, so you watched this documentary before I did. Like, what's you, what was your initial experience with Gary Shandling before he was like a documentary subject? Sure. Um, actually, I'm glad you asked. You were my you were my inspiration, Joe. You were <laughs> you were the Aww. wind beneath my wings. <laughs> you when we started working together, I um I, I was managing a lot, and like you would be working with me, like doing the box office at the film center, and we had a lot of time to like get to know each other and talk. And we were creating this podcast. So we were like, we had lots to discuss and found common, you know, areas of interest for obvious reasons. And I was kind of in a bummer state at this time where I only still was new to Portland. And the only job I had was this part-time theater job. And I was just sort of, you know, struggling to get my footing so I could be like, I like it here, but my future, like, how do I know I can make it work, you know? And just going through a lot in that way. And I remember you saying like Netflix has all the Gary Shan uh, has all the Larry Sanders right now. I don't know why it's not on HBO, but it's on Netflix right now. And you would out of the blue, just sort of recommended like, that's a great thing to dive into, man. I bet you'll like it. And I remember talk about binging hard. I mean, this was the time where I just wasn't working that much. So it almost can become harmful to watch this much TV, but I dove in and I went through it like in less than a month. It's like five or six seasons too. And I just, I just went through it all. And I, needless to say, I fell in love with it very quickly. And I think we can both articulate that to some degree, but I'm in a similar boat. It's just a really, for one, I mean, on a basic level, that show way ahead of its time. I remember that's how you sort of got me excited to check it out. You're like, that is like the source of all like what's hip now in TV and has been for a while, the like single camera, um, almost documentary like thing, but not a documentary like Arrested Development did that or The Office. You had referenced it in that way. And I so agree. This show way ahead of its time, but also just like the characters, the people you spend time with, like a lot of them are awful, but they're fucking great. And I loved them all kind of in that similar way when you get to know people at work that like you like things about them and you don't or, or whatever, but like you want to be around these people. And that show just is kind of like almost perfect in what it was, I think. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of it for me in all honesty uh, with Gary Shandling, other than knowing him as a personality, seeing some stand up or, you know, footage yeah. uh, from Johnny Carson and whatnot. That's kind of it for me. And this documentary was really great because I'm already a fan, but it did for me expanded on. And really for me, it was like the perfect, like memorial looking back, like, 
condensed thing about this guy's life and art. And I think it's, um, I think this documentary, which is on HBO is, I think possibly Judd Apatow's best thing that he's made. Um, and I like a lot of his stuff. I think this was the thing he was born to make because you, you learn like Gary Shandling was his mentor and, uh, and his hero in many ways. So, that's kind of my my journey with Gary Shandling at this point. But um, so I thank you. But then I'm just like so thrilled by this beautiful two part documentary that like seriously, Judd Apatow was born to make this movie, I thought. So I'm very happy about it. Yeah, it's um, it, it gives like a context to like because I, I knew similarly, like I knew him as like a personality, but really he really came into like, I got to know him as the character of Larry Sanders, which like watching this documentary, you see the journey to him creating that character. Cause he was like always trying to authentically find himself and be himself. And like, let that, um, let, let that transformation be the sort of gift of his comedy. And then like, I didn't really have a context in terms of like watching the it's Gary Shandling show. Never really watched that when I was younger. Um, but I watched the Larry Sanders show on HBO when I was growing up and like would stay up late, watch it. And just like, was it like, just would get lost in it and love it. And it never, it never changed. Cause I don't think that that show has really been surpassed, even though there are things that seem similar to it now. And it seemed to like spur like generations later, like a t- type of com still is at the apex of and like as good as arrested development parks and rec the office is like larry sanders is so at home in itself in its language in its atmosphere that it's not like it can't be topped it's like remarkable i say six feet under is the best tv show of all time but like just beneath that is the larry sanders show or maybe neck and neck in a tie uh if it's they're racing each other which i don't know why they would be but um, the Larry Sanders show is just like the ensemble, the writing, just the sheer naturalistic quality of it, that it, it genuinely feels like it's always happening. And you like and you feel so at home in it that you want it to always be happening. And that's why, like, as it sort of reached its concluding season, like it's so you because you made it all the way through. Right. You watched it to to its end. Well- Multiple times because I convinced my girlfriend when we started dating to watch it. <laughs> I just did it all again. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So just like having this similar to what you're talking about with like supplemental documentaries, like that's what's like remarkable about this to see like to to see the story behind how this show was created and how he like he had to create this fiction in order to access a truer part of himself. Cause like as he was just trying to be himself as a performer there is that distancing that happens when you're like, I'm me, I'm just me. I'm speaking about what's going on. And so he had to create like a fiction in order to access the actual emotional truth, which was, I think that's what makes that show sing so much is like the vulnerability of these characters. And they're fucking beautiful in that way. Like I remember watching it with similarly with a, with a girlfriend who like Jeffrey Tambor's character, <laughs> however flawed he is as an actual person he plays sure. Hank Kingsley. And, you know, we're, one of we the don't best need to... TV characters ever. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like he is so like in this documentary, Jeffrey Tambor talks about how he was braced by Gary Shandling to be like, you can't prepare for this. And so like 
that's the beauty of like his performance as Hank Kingsley is that he's always like flustered. And so like, I think that's what he meant by you can't prepare for this. You're this raw nerve at all times and he's bumbling and he's arrogant and he's a fuck up. And his like humanity is so like, it's this, this like live wire moment of like, you want to cry for this person and you're laughing hysterically at and with him, you know, like it's, and what that show is, that's what the show is at its best. And it like very rarely faltered from that. And I think like the documentary gives that context to like what Gary Shandling brought to the world. And beyond that, like, you know, you were talking about how he's a mentor to Judd Apatow and like Judd Apatow carries that in terms of his mentorship and like this community he's created out of like, you know, just a genuine sense of support where he's like, he's putting people on to do great things, you know? And like, that's, that's the sort of like legacy that like the, the documentary speaks to. And I think that like, it was pretty heartening and tear jerky by the, the conclusion of the Zen diaries, you know, the, the things that I like learned from this documentary too, about even just specifically the Larry Sanders show was like, for me, because I came to it so much later than when it was actually on air that I, th- I found fascinating. Like the, the degree of meta levels, like you're speaking to this, that like so much of what Gary Shanley got wrapped up on with his comedy. And I think why he was an innovator um, as this documentary shows so clearly and someone that just pushed the boundaries and it was really an artist, you know, truly, but he always had this meta hyper reflexive style that was commenting on things in his own life. And I come to find out that like one of the characters early on in the movie or the show was his actual wife at the time. And the documentary, no. yeah, the documentary like gets in interviews her and like, obviously Judd has a relationship with her. So like there's this intimacy that really works in this story, this documentaries um, favor that might've sunk a lot of other documentaries that are, that are there to memorialize and remember and say what's great about someone that's moved on. But like this one is very even handed as well. And also gives voice to, to her because she got kind of fucked over by Gary Shandling in life. And then in this weird meta, show universe had to still participate in it. And he used that as fodder as content, you know, as a way to explore his creativity. And then it goes down the rabbit hole of like, when he did like DVD special features, he made her come do an interview about it. And it's like the degree of like, Oh my God, it's like, I, this is too personal. I shouldn't know this information about these people, but it's so fascinating. And um, that's what really makes this more. Cause I think, we would have liked this if it was just a total loving tribute, but Judd Apatow, I think really was fair and balanced and also makes use of a lot of available, great archival footage. You know, that's another uh, exciting thing about this movie as well is that it has that, but has a ton of great talking head interviews with people. Every, I mean, basically everybody in the comedy world, maybe except for Ricky Gervais, we find out uh, like loves this guy, like for good reason. And, you're reminded of like what a, or I came to learn what a mentor and like, he was there for a lot of people. And um, like the story about Conan O'Brien in this documentary, like when he got fired from his show, fuck man, that's so touching. And that's the kind of stuff that Gary Shanley like did for people in his community. So it, it does lionize him, but it's also like shows his plenty of flaws as a human and his friends know he was flawed and acknowledge that it's a, 
there's there's stuff with Bob Saget that crushed me in this documentary as well that had to do with their relationship. And this is a guy that I know from his dirty comedy and then full house. And now I'm getting all these dimensions of him as a person. And uh, comedians can be like the most fascinating, touching, sometimes sad people on this planet. And I love that this documentary celebrates that and shows so much of that. Like it just, it just works. Yeah. Cause it's like their, their, their art form is essentially a coping mechanism for what is like a hypersensitivity to the world around them, which is like, you know, that was, that was Gary Shandling, which like he was hypersensitive to the point of being a flawed person in a lot of ways and hypersensitive to the point where he could really take in like a lot of humanity's struggles and then make them seem manageable through his, his work and his art, you know? And like, yeah, I kind of want to restart the Larry Sanders show all over again. I know it makes me, it, I'm, I want to find the, what was the previous one he did? It's Gary Sam Chandler show. What was it's it called? Shandling show. Yeah, that seemed really innovative and meta and cool. Um, I'd like to, I'm sure you can find find it somewhere. I, I'm kind of curious to dive into that, but um, I would I would rewatch Larry Sanders in a heartbeat. It's such a such a special show, man. It brought us together, my friend. Oh, good. I'm glad, I'm glad to well, hear that. It's one of the things, I guess. But yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a, a key a key moment for me, and. Uh, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm also just kind of proud of Judd Apatow in in my way because like I haven't really like loved the movies he's directed lately. Uh, I think all of them have things that remind me of what makes him special as a comic director. I think of Funny People, which I think is half of a almost a masterwork, and then the other half is not. And um, there, you know, This Is Forty is like got its moments. You know, like I've I'm I'm always still curious to see what Judd Apatow's doing. But I started to think like maybe he's just doing more good as a producer and sort of paying it forward himself by giving people like Amy Schumer or uh, Seth Rogen and all these people he's helped give careers to and give opportunities to. Maybe he's doing better work there. But then to just see this like, oh, here's a documentary that he directed and it's perfect. And I'm just I'm just kind of happy to be reminded like Judd Apatow can still make a really great movie. Um uh, and this, this is, this is it for me. So I'm, I'm super, ex- you know, I'm, I'm excited on this episode, Joe, these, these documentaries got me excited. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, all right, man. What do you think? Uh, should I'm, I'm, I'm about as exhausted, uh, as after watching these long ass documentaries, why don't we wrap it up? Yeah, we kept it real for as long as we could. So just chill to the next episode. So, uh, let's wrap up episode 174 of adjust your tracking. I had a list of documentaries I was going to point out to to people to check out, but it seems sort of arbitrary. So all I'm going to say before we totally wrap up is uh, there's a couple ones coming out in the summer here uh, soon. Uh, starting in May, there's that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, RBG. I, I'm looking forward to that. Looks very good. And then uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, the uh, Mr. Rogers documentary, which nice. we just... We, it looks that trailer man crushes me every time. Um, I want to see that movie. It looks like it's going to be really great. And I'm excited because both those docs, um, are going to be coming to my theater in Portland and, uh, they might be really big hits for us in the summer movie season, which is, I think very cool and rare. So, um, you know, more documentaries, of course, coming down the pike. Yeah, I thought maybe I had been all cried out by the trailer for won't you be my neighbor? And then I, you know, (laughs) 
I think I mentioned it on a previous episode that when I saw Isle of Dogs in the theater and it was trailered ahead of time, I was just like, oh, no, I'm going to cry in public now. Okay, here goes. <laughs> I've been playing that trailer and RBG trailer, which made me choke up too, man, both of them. Uh, I've just been playing them in the beginning uh, when a movie starts just to like let the audience get it out of their system <laughs> so they can mm-hmm. get get to the movie. But uh, yeah, very effective stuff. So, you know. Uh, look out for those. I'm I'm sure one or the other we'll probably talk about uh, on the podcast. So so look forward to that. Um, for sure. And yeah, so you can find all of Adjust Your Tracking's uh, latest episodes at theplaylist.net. You can also click on the podcast tab and you'll find all the other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network there. So go to theplaylist.net. You can uh, communicate with me and Joe at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. We, we prefer email. We are on Facebook uh aren't we joe still i wouldn't know i'm not on there very much yeah so our personal information <laughs> being mined for nefarious purposes <laughs> so you know let's i mean but what are, what are you going to use the fact that we like lynn ramsey's movies against us in a political campaign i doubt it so <laughs> they'll find some way those russian bots and uh we'll, we'll see this shows we'll up and like cats a whole lot let's see if we could sway his vote what oh, okay good luck <laughs> <laughs> you liked Ketty, so maybe you'll like Donald Trump or something like that. It's weird. We're in a weird he world, seems, Joe. He seems like an anti-cat person. Fuck that guy. I bet you're right. It's another reason, and it's always good to say, fuck that guy, indeed. So so with that, if you say fuck that guy, we, we are already friends with you, and we thank you, but I got to thank Joe for talking with me today. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. It was pretty heartening and tear jerky by the the conclusion of the Zen Diaries. You know, are you still there? Yes. Sorry, I was being distracted by my girlfriend, and I just told her to go away. <laughs> um, hold on, I'm going to mark this so I can cut it. Sorry about that, dude. No, um, keep it in there. It's all it's all part of it. It's real. <laughs> oh, it's very Larry Sandler's esque. Uh, that Gary that's Sandler. the thing. To, yeah, I can't talk. <laughs> it's thrown off my game. Uh, well, that...